tonight on Arena. The Banshees of Inisherin, Decision to Leave and Black Adam of the Movies up for review and we speak to the three writers of this year's RTE Storyland Projects. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Ravine. Arena, tonight in our film reviews, 14 years after they starred together in In Bruges, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson are reunited in Martin McDonough's award-winning The Banshees of Inisherin. Park Chan-wook's film noir, Decision to Leave, is South Korea's entry for the Best International Film at, this, at next year's Oscars. And Dwayne The Rock Johnson enters the superhero metaverse as Black Adam, the world's most ancient superhero. Superhero. Joining me in the studio to discuss this week's releases are Deirdre Malumbi and Chris Wasser. And let's start at home with the Banshees of Inisherin. Uh, we're dealing with Porrick, played by Colin Farrell, Colin, played by Brendan Gleeson, two former lifelong friends living in a small uh, town, island, uh, the island of Inisherin off the west coast of Ireland. But one morning it all goes terribly wrong, Deirdre. That's right. So you have um, Porrick uh, Sulawan, who is played by Colin Farrell here, and Colm Doherty, who's played by Brendan Gleeson. And we follow Porrick as he's, you know, going for his regular walk about the island, goes to visit his uh, best friend Colm, and he is just sitting there in his little house, completely ignoring him. Porrick's really kind of baffled by this, but he goes about his day, um, meets Colm later on in the pub, and Colm keeps on getting up and, you know, walking yeah. to a separate table and all of that. And eventually Colm just, you know, reveals that he has decided yeah, he doesn't well, like Porrick anymore. Well, let's have a listen to the clip where he does precisely that. Um, they've been, as you say, the Colin Farrell character has been pursuing the Brendan Gleeson character saying, would you chat to me, talk to me, tell me what's wrong. Eventually he goes outside, outside, out of sight of the pub and Colin Farrell follows the Brendan Gleeson character outside and this is the conversation that they have. Now I'm sitting here next to you and if you're going back inside, I'm following you inside and if you're going home, I'm following you there too. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. With all my heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. You do like me. I don't. You liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. I thought you did. There you go. Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell in a scene there from Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inna Sharon. And all three of us actually in studio at the point when he says, would, would you like me yesterday? Or he, first of all, Gleason says, I just don't like you anymore then. But you like me yesterday. We all kind of, I think you put your hand up to your chest, mm-hmm. dear, in kind of pity for him. <laughs> you had a big ah, Chris. I, I did. It, it's a deeply moving sequence that. And McDonough really f- f- treads a very fine line here between the maudlin 
and the genuinely emotional. He does, yeah. And I found that scene devastating. Uh, purely for, uh, if not for the for the, for the the dialogue there, the richness of, the, of mm. the dialogue, for Colin Farrell's performance, because there's that pause, there's that agonising pause where Farrell's face just collapses in on itself. And he's just come on in the 14, 15 years since he performed it in Bruges. Uh, he's just a more, far more accomplished performer mm. now than he was then. And that scene just tells you everything you need to know about Colin Farrell, the actor right now. And I, I think as well that that scene is so devastating because in a way, the Banshees of Inishera, and you know, it's about sour brotherhood, it's about toxic masculinity, it's about all of these guys alone on this, you know, thinly plotted rock mm. off the west coast of Ireland who are unable, the men in particular, who are unable to communicate everything that's going on in their heads. Uh, but there's also this idea that it might be a bit of a breakup story. And, you know, we've seen the breakup story a million and one times before, you know, on the page or on the screen when it involves two lovers. But the idea of a friend turning around to another friend and ending things, that's new. And that's mm. weird and that's unsettling. And that's why everyone involved, you know, all of the locals in the Sharon just can't get their heads around the idea of one friend ending things with another. And I just think it's such a delicious setup. Yeah, and I don't think it's only the people in Inisherin. I think it's a lot of people who have seen the movie feel the same. Like, you know, how, how can two pals just fall out in, in, in that way? But it, it is set during the Civil War. And while mm-hmm. we're not beaten over the head with that, yeah. a, there is a, a bigger picture at play here, Deirdre. Yeah, that's just it. The fact that it is set in uh, 1920s Ireland and you have that Irish Civil War as kind of the backdrop to it, it just adds to that degree of like tension in this movie. And I have to say, like what Martin McDonough has done here, reunited, of course, with uh, Farrell and Gleeson from In Bruges, is quite extraordinary. Um, aside from the absolutely terrific acting and all the kind of, you know, deep themes that are mm. going on in this and really like quite quite high emotions. Um, it's shot absolutely beautifully. The cinematography in this, like it it was shot in such locations as Inishmore and Ackle Island. And it's so sunny all of the time that it almost kind of adds to the ambience of like kind of high realism or surrealism. Yeah. Like you can't quite like understand this world and then it's populated by such incredible like little characters like there's uh, the local who runs the shop who's always looking for the bit of gossip who's absolutely hilarious she's actually prayed by uh, Breedney Nyakton who we talked about before on the show in uh, Rosha and Frank and then you've got the priest you've got the old lady who's always kind of lurking about and saying these strange things Uh, Barry Keoghan's character who's like this like young little like weirdo but also absolutely like pathetic and so Mm. so sad as well and those characters really make this world feels so rounded mm. and tangible. And the other thing, I mean, when we think of and even if you think of in, in Bruges, if you think of three billboards near Ebbing, Missouri, there's a kind of a blackness in the comedy there. Now, I'm not saying that's totally absent from the uh, from the Banshees of Inisherin, but there's a real heart in the Banshees of, of Inisherin that I think hasn't been, certainly it's been there in McDonald's work before, but not to the fore as much as it is here. Yeah, I mean, there was a tragedy, you know, lurking in the background in Imbruge, you know, and there mm. was a, a, a touch of heart there, you know, it could be moving at times. And then that was pushed right forward with three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. But I think as much as that film is acclaimed, you know, and it won Oscars and it's it was, you know, it was Martin McDonough's big cinema, big Oscar moment. I think it was, it was a little incomplete. It kind of lost the run of itself at times. This is probably the most complete thing that he's done because he somehow has found that perfect yeah. balance between the macabre between the you know the the uh, the, the the very sideways you know peculiar Irish humour and also the, this tender story of a friendship falling apart I think Yeah and isolation and the loneliness on the yeah. end but you mentioned some of the side cast there but you didn't mention mm-hmm. one and I know you do want to mention her is Kerry Condon she plays the sister mm-hmm. and this is a sister brother relationship I mean <laughs> even to say it it's so 
beautifully done by both Colin Farrell and, and Kerry Condon. They're absolutely extraordinary in this. I mean, Kerry Condon, um, I think that a lot of people have been talking about, you know, Colin Farrell as possibly getting an Oscar nod for this, but Kerry Condon could very well mm. um, also. You really see her character, Siobhan, and how she's so infuriated at being surrounded by all these foolish, stubborn men on this island. And you also really get the loneliness of her character. You know, the fact that she doesn't really have this chance of forming any romantic bond or even a meaningful friendship on the island because there are just too few people around her. And she's and really intelligent, really bright, mm-hmm. really well read. Yeah, yeah. She's absolutely amazing in this. Um, I love, I absolutely love her performance. I loved Colin Farrell's as well. I know we kind of were touching mm. on it earlier, but I just found him so dependent and needy and slow-witted and pathetic, <laughs> but absolutely so earnest and yeah. so kind-hearted. It's a gorgeous performance and I love as well that it's really his journey that we that we follow because the character development, what he goes through is really incredible as you watch it unfold on the yeah, screen. And, and, and it brings us to a very long, sad and lonely place by the end. But let's, let's have a listen to a clip that featured Barry Keoghan and I think equally brings real pathos to the character that he plays here who's in a very difficult situation but here he is arriving at the pub um, Colin Farrell's character is already there we should say Brendan Gleeson's character plays the violin and, or the fiddle and that's yes. hugely important in the in the story and some of the more gory aspects are in and around that uh, we should mention as well but here um, Barry Keoghan's about to arrive into the pub Colin Farrell's character is already there but Colin Farrell's character is going nobody told me there was a session <laughs> happening here I didn't hear those to be a session. Last minute thing. Colin decided. All the ladies love Colin, you know? Always did. Yeah. That's not true. You're still bad, Dominic. Out! You said bad until April. Well, what do we know? April. Well, put that stick outside anyways, and don't be bothering the women. There's women. There is women. And good ones. Barry Kogan, Colin Farrell and Pat Short in there as well. We should say John Kenny is part of it too. Don't believe it was kind of reunited here. Um, I, I don't think anybody has... Uh, do you have a bad thing to say about the film or what overall are you saying, Chris? Not at all. It's a wonderful study of... Uh, I love how Colin Farrell's character is the only one who is kind of settled and at ease with the, with the fact that Inna Sharon is going to be the rest of his life. But Kerry Condon's character is thinking, like, I could have a career elsewhere. And Brendan Gleeson's, you know, Colin just wants to kind of spend his days composing music. And I also love that idea that he's prioritise his art over niceness. That's yeah. a wonderful idea that McDonough just sneaks into the film that, you know, do you have to be a nice person to in order to create your art, you know? And, and if he's going to create something special that he'd be remembered for, uh, does he have to, you know, be, be nice to yeah. his mates along the way? I thought that was a great idea to sneak in there. Stars? I think it's it's wonderful. It's pitch perfect. The performances, the writing, the setting, it looks amazing. I think it's the most complete and the most accomplished of McDonough's film and probably the greatest uh, thing that we've seen from Gleason. And again, I'll add Colin Farrell. It's, he's just, he's so accomplished as a performer here. And it's a performance of such startling control and conviction that I will be very surprised if there wasn't okay. a nomination in his future. So I'm going to go for the full five. Full five from you. What are you saying, Deirdre? I adored this film. It took so many twists and turns that I never saw coming. I mean, there are so many ways to interpret this uh, story and its themes and conclusion. Even Chris there kind of touched on the idea of toxic masculinity. For me, I found it so striking in how it captured the isolation of rural life and how it showed how to be alone is really to go against human nature 
future and how thin the line can be between insanity and art and individualism. I love a movie I can pour and pour over after seeing. Uh, so for me, this is a five and f- out of five star movie as well. A double five. Yeah, not too often. No, not too often that we get that. And if I had five to give, it would be getting five for me as well. Uh, that's uh, the Banshees of Inisherin. And by the way, uh, Sinead Egan spoke with Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson and Martin McDonough. We broadcast those interviews on Monday night's programme. Loved when Martin McDonough spoke about niceness. You know, niceness being very underestimated because you don't think of that in terms of the type of writing that he gives us. Yeah. Go back and listen to them if you didn't hear the interviews on Monday night. They're really well worth listening to. All of them in great form indeed. Okay, double five. I'm delighted about that. Let's move on then <laughs> to Decision to Leave. This is uh, Park Chan-wook um, and we're, we're talking about a romance comedy here, a romance, well, not comedy, a romance and a mystery film, uh, Chris, directed by Park Chan-wook. Is, 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 the, is that a kind of a departure for, for him? A little bit, yeah, but there is a there there there's a there's a good streak of of, of dark twisted humor mm. in here actually. Uh, but this is quite different. But again, the Handmaiden, which is the last cinematic ever mm. we had from we had from Park Chan Wook, was was very different from from Stoker, which was very different from Old Boy. So he doesn't you know he doesn't uh, tend to to repeat himself. But the setup here is you know a little bit Hitchcockian. You know you know stop me if you think you've 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 seen this in Vertigo. But we have a detective who sort of falls for uh, the lead suspect in what might be we don't know a murder case but it's a it's a it's a it's a cracking setup uh you've got this detective inspector hey yoon who's played by park hey il and he's kind of he th- this guy's kind of a solid by the book inspector and he's you know he's mm. risen through the ranks quicker than most you know he's very clean cut he's got this amenable personality he he kind of gets the job done you know cleaner and quicker than most of his peers and he's stumped when uh himself and his colleagues discover this you know dead body at the foot of a mountain and they don't know whether he's been pushed whether he's fallen they actually climb up the mountain at one stage and he's got his partner strapped to his back to kind of see to in order to you know initiate some sort of reconstruction of how the how the man might have fallen. But when they bring in uh, the deceased man's wife, played by Tang Wei, uh, she is Chinese who 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 is uh, actually moved over to to to, to South Korea. Uh, they're just again, as I say, stumped because she doesn't seem to be grieving her husband. She doesn't seem to be too upset about it. There is some sort of suggestion, sort of evidence that the husband might have been violent towards her, and all signs are pointing towards the wife having had some sort of involvement in this death. And you would think that, you know, the investigating officer yeah. is going to say, well, OK, you're charged with the murder. Instead, he falls in love with of her. Of course he does. I suppose it's a classic kind of femme fatale and, you know, kind of gumshoe type of guy going around who haplessly falls in love with the prime suspect. Yeah, absolutely. And in fairness, the chemistry between the lead actors, uh, Tang Wei, who people might recognise, she was the lead in Lust Caution, uh, which was a film that really shot her to stardom. And uh, Park Il, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, who was also in Bong Joon-ho's mm. uh, Memories of Murder. Their chemistry is absolutely terrific. I love when they share these knowing glances and kind of quiet, intimate um, conversation. I wasn't as mad about the movie when it was kind of drifting towards other characters who were working in the detectives um, kind of precinct and kind of talking about like other criminals who were under investigation. I found that it was kind of going on a tangent that wasn't really necessary um, and I found it quite a slow burner and a slow moving movie as well. Um, I'm a huge fan of The Handmaiden. I think that it's one of my favourite movies over the last 10 years and I think that of all of Chan Wook's works it does have probably the most in common with that film. Um, they're both cent- centred on mystery, a love story. Um, there's also kind of this interest in the cultural divide between uh, different Asian nationalities mm. in that The Handmaiden depicted Korea under Japanese uh, colonial rule and the implications of power in that 
that dynamic. And in this case, we have a female protagonist who is an e- illegal Chinese immigrant and he's a Korean law enforcer. So, so you have is, that idea of forbidden love and opposite sides and, and stuff like that. And there's a kind of a political aspect to exactly. a bigger, bigger message being given in, within that as well, mm-hmm. is there? Precisely, yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned Vertigo in particular. Yeah. Does it, it, it doesn't, it wears those influences on its sleeve, I think, Chris. It does, yeah. And I suppose it might be unfair to, to, to go too heavy on that, even though I mentioned it at the top there, because it does eventually kind of slip, you know, it, it finds its own groove, it finds its own rhythm. And it's, uh, there, look, there, there's, there's an awful lot to like here. I thought the 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 the, the basic premise is very impressive. Mm. The performances are something else, particularly Tang Wei's performance, um, and also this idea that the you know the investigating officer, the detective inspector, he has chronic insomnia, and the only time he's able to uh, you know maybe get a little bit of shut eye is when he's on these it was okay. when he's on these stakeouts or when he's actually watching her. And also the idea as well that he we're constantly chasing the film. We're not quite sure what's real and what's not because he is the same because he hasn't had a decent right. night's sleep. But when you That's said, very impressive. When you said there's an awful like, lot to like here I heard a but yes I do think it runs on a little bit and it strains itself in this final third at 138 minutes I think it could I think it could have lost about half right. an hour there's a bit it's a bit too wobbly in it's sort of jigsaw puzzle like right. structure so there's a bit too much of it basically uh, are there buts for you as well Deirdre yeah I'd agree like there are some really beautiful moments in that cinematography and it is excellently uh, directed I think I had my hopes a little high because I'm such a huge fan of The Handmaiden I suppose I was kind of expecting yeah. uh, that type of movie again and he has some great works as well between 2003's Old Boy uh, we mentioned Stoker there with Mia Wasikowska he has this uh, vampire horror movie called Thirst which was out in 2009 which I'd highly recommend as well so I suppose having known all of his previous works I couldn't help but compare them and this in comparison it did just feel that bit long and that bit too slow It's slabby okay Zev stars from you Deirdre um, I still really like the film there are some unexpected moments of uh, humour in it there's this will they won't they cat and mouse narrative um, there's a spectacular conclusion to it. Still would have liked if it was 20, maybe even 30 minutes shorter. Uh, three stars for me. Three stars from you. What did you say? Oh, you didn't. I didn't ask no, you, No, I think it's workable and watchable part-time work and that's better than no part-time work. So I'd say three stars. Three stars. Okay. Let's move on to our final film then. After 5,000 years of imprisonment, uh, Black Adam, played by Dwayne Johnson, uh, in prison for what? Crimes against acting? Did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> a Middle Eastern anti-hero from the ancient city of Kandak is unleashed into the modern world. Even as I say that sentence uh, alone, Chris, I kind of, I know where I'm at with this yeah. film. Um, do you need to tell us anything more about what happens after 5,000 years of imprisonment? No, I mean, he's he's woken up by this, uh, I don't mean to sound so fed up with it already. <laughs> he's woken up by this university professor slash resistant fighter played by Shahi. Shahi. Uh, there's some bad guys after him for his magic crown or something. Then you've got the Justice Society of America fronted by Dr. Fate, portrayed by Navin's finest, Pierce Brosnan. They, you know, travel to this fictional Middle Eastern nation because, you know, they think that this superhero needs to be taken down but then you've got the locals saying no but he's our hero and that's pretty much the gist of it yeah. you know what you're getting here who's, who's Hawkman where does Hawkman fit into all of that Deirdre um, Hawkman oh gosh I mean uh, even like going <laughs> through the characters I mean they're all so like ridiculous Hawkman is kind of this amalgamation between you know other characters we've seen in the MCU between like you know um, Hawkeye and Falcon and stuff like that and you've also got Adam Smasher 
Peter, who's basically a ripoff of Ant-Man, even down to um, his costume, yeah. Chris was telling me outside. And then Cyclone, who's like kind of the B version of Storm, I suppose, the character. So not exactly the show ponies of the DC stable that we're getting <laughs> oh, here. Dear. Right, let's have a listen to the aforementioned uh, Hawkman, played by Aldous Hodge, who's talking to Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam here, telling him to rein it in. <laughs> Now he's telling the character to rein it in, not Dwayne, jo- not Dwayne the Rock Johnson. We'll also hear the voice of Pierce Brosnan here as Doctor Fate. I told you stop killing people. They look alive to me because I saved them. Well, that's why I waited until you were there. I got the information I needed. No one died. I did it your way. He does have a point. I know it got lost in all the confusion, but we still have some issues to settle here. There are only heroes, and there are villains. You think yourself a hero, but you would let these criminals go free. Heroes don't kill people. Well, I do. It's a good job that that big sound effect is in between to fill the big pause before Will I Do. That's a, a, a clip from Black Adam. How does it look, Chris? And, and you know, isn't this, maybe we're being too snotty. The Marvel Universe is what it is. If you're going to it, you know what you're going to get. Is it a good action movie? Do you kind of, are you, are you carried along by the fun of it all? No. <laughs> no, not at all. No, I mean, the, look, the guys at Marvel, the guys at Marvel Studios, you know, everything in the MCU, it's so well planned. It's so well oiled. They know what they're doing. This is like the pound shop version of that plan that they have in place with DC. Mm. And I'm probably going hard on this film because we are either 11, maybe 12 films into this DC extended universe. After two and a half billion dollars have been spent on these films, we should at least get some sense that the people in charge know what they're doing. But we don't. And what this is, is just a... A bunch of ideas, a bunch of famous people, an awful lot of, you know, $200 million worth of effects and and, and staging and performers all thrown together with nearly a sense of regard for any sort of storytelling structure. And I think it's such a shame, too, because we've got the world's most famous actor, the world's most bankable actor front and centre. There should be some sort of charisma there. There should be some sort of charm. It's just CGI slow motion gloop. It, yeah. you, 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 you have hmm. no idea what's happening while you're watching it and it's not fun Sean I mean yeah, and Marvel films are fun this is just just dire and derivative and just so boring yeah because I was being a bit unfair to Dwayne Johnson because he does bring charm to the screen he, he it might Usually, be a kind yeah. of a, yeah, yeah. A, there might be a kind of a you know cardboard cutout type of character there's never well there's seldom much depth to the characters that he plays but he has his own innate charm which he, makes him very watchable whose fault is the movie here then is it the director Jaume Colette I think it might be yeah yeah but I mean I think it is partly the casting of Dwayne Johnson as well because I couldn't watch this movie and not see Dwayne Johnson wearing a silly superhero suit I couldn't not see that I mean it doesn't exactly help that the suit isn't particularly kind of you know interesting it's basically like they took the Shazam um, outfit Uh, Shazam by the way is one of DC's kind of better uh, movies and just took away the cape and threw a bunch of like black tar on it or something it's not particularly Mm. like creative or anything this film is just so formulaic not particularly interesting not particularly witty Um, it sometimes goes for that dark and brooding uh, DC tone um, that we associate with that company but then it also is isn't very focused either. They do give Dwayne Johnson these moments to try to be a bit funnier and try to be 
a bit more like himself, but it's just not focused on anything. And then we're going back to, you know, the Justice Society of America and what they're doing. And I was also like slightly baffled by for uh, for Dwayne Johnson having like top billing in this. He doesn't seem to have that much screen time. There's a, there's a, no. there's this section of the third act where he's just not present for it at all. And the camera's constantly diverting over to these other far less interesting characters. And I kind of half wonder if Dwayne Johnson was given this like really tight shooting schedule just to accommodate what would likely be a very hefty paycheck. What I've um, So stars, dare to. Yeah, I mean, look, I feel like I am being very harsh. I do generally enjoy this genre. I think the film does have its moments when it comes to the action and humour. And we haven't mentioned yet, but Pierce Brosnan, I thought he was very good as Dr. Fate. He does bring that just natural flair and charm uh, that I wish we had a bit more from Dwayne Johnson in this, unfortunately. It's probably just about good enough to kind of keep the tired wagon that is the DCU a-rolling. Um, I'm going to give it two stars. Two. What are you saying, Chris? Imagine if Doctor Strange from the Marvel Cinematic Universe just basically did Zoolander's Blue Steel for 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 the entire film. That's no, what no, Pierce. That's what, that. that's what Pierce Brosnan <laughs> does as Doctor Fate in the, in this thing. It's just carnage. It's it's just irredeemably awful, Sean. I just I I, I can't I can't deal with it. One star. One star <laughs> for Black Adam. Uh, and before that, we were speaking about decision to leave, which sounds as if it's worth seeing from Park Chan Wook. And the winner this evening, without any doubt, is the Banshees of Inisherin. It's in cinemas from tomorrow, I do believe, as are the others, but no doubt which one you should be trying to get out to see. Uh, Deirdre Malumbi and Chris Wasser, our reviewers on this Thursday evening. Last year, 2021, RT Radio 1 broadcast a series of short stories entitled Spoken Stories 1, Independence. For the series, 12 stories were commissioned that took as their starting point what independence could mean 100 years after Ireland's War of Independence. Readers of those stories included some of the authors and invited actors when they were broadcast on RT Radio 1 over a period of months. Spoken Stories returns are returned last weekend with a new series, this time entitled Spoken Stories 2, Creatures of the Earth. The title Creatures of the Earth comes from a short story collection of the same name by John McGahern. McGahern, in fact, often referred to himself as coming from the first generation born into an independent Ireland. And so the new series is a natural progression from its predecessor. Contributing writers this year it could include Christine Dwyer Hickey, Billy O'Callaghan, and amongst the actors reading the stories, you'll hear Pat Short, Charlene McKenna, and others. The first. In the series, uh, this year was broadcast last Sunday at 7.30pm here on RT Radio 1. Uh, it was entitled Bride, written by Donald Ryan, read by Darren McCormick. This Sunday, same time, same station, the series continues with a story entitled Near Adelaide, written by Christine Dwyer Hickey and read by Emma Dargan Reed. The story is set in Australia and the fact that Emma Dargan Reed's parents emigrated there from Ireland brings poignancy to this pairing of writer and actor. The story relates so much to family absence and distance. Here is some of Christine Dwyer's Hickey, Christine Dwyer Hickey's Near Adelaide, read by Emma Dargan-Reed. She had come from a house of men. They were there when she sat down for breakfast each morning and, during the day while she did her homeschooling, they passed in and out of the kitchen. She saw them again in late afternoon when they came in for their Arvo tea. 
the men wore the same dark blue overalls. Some faded, some not. And on their backs, in slanted yellow letters, her father's name, twice written, Tim's Timberyard. Mrs Howe was the only woman to set foot in the house since her mother left. Mrs Howe and hopeless Bernie, who came to clean three times a week. Right up to the last second, she thought, he'll change his mind. He'll open the door and say, Ah, to hell with it. Jump in. We're going home. But the car turned its back to her and slipped away down the avenue. For a few steps, she ran after it. That's what Mrs Howe said, she yelled. That's exactly what she said. The day before she left for school, Lou spoke to her again. He was counting logs off the back of a truck in the far yard. She sneaked up behind him and waited. I know you're there, Lou said. Then he reached into his pocket and gave her a folded piece of paper. You didn't get that from me. On the airplane, her father gave her the window seat. He leaned across her, pointing down at things. Forests that supplied the trees for his timber yard, hills and an endless highway, and swirls of dried-up riverbeds. They looked down at the different shapes and shades of desert. When they crossed the red centre, he showed her Alice Springs and said they were halfway there. She nodded her head and pretended to listen. She thought how big Australia was compared to the tiny country on the map Lou had given her. And if Ireland was that small, Dublin must be tiny. And if Dublin was tiny, it should be easy to find someone there. You'd probably just bump into them walking along the street. When they were over Cuba Petty, she pressed her face against the window. But all she could see was a blur of brown and yellow and red with long chimney stacks poking out of the land like snorkels, and a lone Australian greyhound bus inching along the Stuart Highway. It took a while before she began to settle. She made friends or half-friends with girls who, like her, always walked by the wall. It meant she didn't have to eat alone or to sit during recreation pretending to read. Not that she cared all that much. She had her own thoughts to keep her alive and her own friends waiting back in the timber yard. She had her map folded under her pillow. The sounds all around her, snores and sighs and sometimes the choking sobs of a new girl crying under the covers. On warmer nights, a milky diarrhoea whiff comes through her open window and she hears the lonely sound of a cow lowing on the hillside. She holds the map to her chest and closes her eyes. She imagines herself walking up the hill behind the tennis courts, then standing at the fence, looking into the black field and hushing the lowing sound to silence.
an extract there from the short story Near Adelaide, written by Christine Dwyer Hickey and read by Emma Dargan Reid. That is in the new series of Spoken Stories, Spoken Stories 2 Creatures of the Earth, to give it its full title. You can hear the story in full this Sunday, October the 23rd at 7.30pm here on RT Radio 1. In fact, you can hear the stories on podcast as well, including the first series of Spoken Stories through rte.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Devised to develop and showcase great local drama, Storyland comes to RTE Television for the first time since its inception over 10 years ago. Storyland has acted as an invaluable springboard and support for Irish writing, directing, producing and acting talent throughout the island of Ireland to develop their careers. The first drama, which is on tonight, is called Mustard, written by Eva O'Connor, adapted from Eva's award-winning stage play. It's a story about substance abuse and self-harm and a few other things besides. Airing on the 27th of October, Ballar Hall is a contemporary whodunit by Reinach Nigrigor. The final drama airing on the 3rd of November is Every Five Miles by Sinead Colopy. Powerful story about people trafficking in Ireland. I'm delighted to be joined by all three filmmakers this evening, Eva O'Connor, Reinach Nigrigor and Sinead Colopy at various venues around the country. <laughs> but let's go to let's go to Eva O'Connor first in Cork. Am I right in saying that, Eva, you are this evening? I'm actually in London. You're in London. Oh, <laughs> I beg your pardon. You're in London. You're in London this evening. Mustard, which is airing tonight at nine thirty p.m. on RTE Two, adapted from your award-winning stage play of the same name. Did Did you know at the writing at the stage of writing the play that this had television potential within it, Eva? I don't think I thought that far ahead when I was actually writing it, but I think as soon as I got to the stage and it got good audience um, reactions, and I suppose the more you tour it, I've been touring it with Fish Amble and it's kind of still touring now. And I suppose you kind of start, you live inside that world when you're performing it and you start mm. to know the characters. And, and and then I suppose the natural thing for me was to kind of see how, how it might work for screen. And then when Storyland came along, I was just so delighted that it would get an opportunity to go on RT. Yeah, and and obviously, when you wrote this, it, it was for a stage performance. You yourself performed, as you've explained to us, performing in the in the play and indeed in the screenplay as well. How difficult a balance is that between you know the writer and because she's the leading character, is Eilish, as you play her. Yeah, I think they're just two very different hats. So obviously all the writing comes before and you're very much in that zone and you work with great script people and then you get it to a place that you're really happy with. And then you kind of put on your other hat for the acting. And I mean, being on set, I, it's directed by Hildegard Ryan, who I work with mm. a lot, very closely. So it was we very much had kind of shared creative control and I was working with a director that I really trusted, that I knew she, she had the vision very clearly in her head. So I suppose there is the advantage of the writer being present on set, but I think by that stage you really want to be focusing just on the acting rather than like changing every second line. Yeah, at that, that stage you can. I suppose you need you need to leave leave things set. Let's have a listen to a, a clip from Mustard. At this stage, she's she's met up with a a, a cyclist um, boy. He's been a kind of a boyfriend, a kind of a boyfriend is the way I put it. There, he he's very interested in cyclist in cycling rather. But she comes downstairs in their shared home one night to see him there with uh, another woman and she reverts back to her old ways uh, with her coping mechanism being mustard 
<laughs> she does all sorts of things with mustard. So let's have a listen to a clip from the film, uh, the television version of Mustard. And be warned, there's uh, some strong language for sure in the midst of this. What the fuck is this? Mustard. Obviously. English mustard. Pure and strong and brilliant. Just like you. This is my house, Eilish. It's your parents' house, actually. What the fuck is wrong with you? What's wrong with me? <laughs> You're insane. Maybe I am. Eva O'Connor as Eilish, of course, I should have said, not Eilish, Eilish in the uh, television version of her play Mustard. And Lex, the other character who's there, who plays Lex uh, in, in the, uh, and is it the same person who has been playing it on stage with you throughout the tour, Eva? Well, on stage, it's just a one person show, so I play ah, right. everyone. So it was a real thrill to have other actors alongside me in the TV version. Uh, Dan Monaghan, who's a brilliant actor, plays Lex and Pauline O'Driscoll plays my mother. Right. Um, my very zany mother. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, and swimming becomes a part of it. But I guess there was more in your mind with mustard than just somebody who has an obsession with eating mustard, covering her body in mustard, doing all sorts of things with the mustard. Yeah, I suppose when I was writing the stage version, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about kind of shameful secrets and things that we kind of do um, secretly and things that really hold us back and things that kind of addle your mind and hold you back and... And I suppose the mustard kind of elevates it into this kind of weird, surreal zone of mustard can stand for whatever you want it to. You know, people mm. often ask me like, they're like, but what does it really mean? And you're like, it can really mean whatever. It can, It's different for different people. Like for me, it was kind of, I was inspired by the whole mustard thing because I used to have an eating disorder and I was addicted to putting mustard on everything because it was very low calorie and high flavor, which it turns out is very normal for people with eating disorders. So that was where my original inspiration mm. kind of came from. But I think, you know, when you're talking about dark things, I think it lifts it into this kind of world, this kind of strange, slightly bizarre, slightly comedic world as well. Yes. And that kind of makes it easier to talk about these kind of tricky things. Yeah. And indeed, there's a touch of the comedic world, Reinach Reinach Nigregor, who's joining us from Berlin, in fact, this evening. Um, there's a touch of the comedic as well within your piece, uh, Reinach Balor Hall, written and directed by you. We had writer and actor in the case of, of Eva, but in your case, it's, it's writing and directing. Tell us a little bit about the, the, the basic setup in, in Balor Hall. There's a touch of the who done it about it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a uh, I suppose a contemporary Irish who done it, um, and a kind of a uh dynasty family land grab. Uh John Devereux, who's the patriarch of this family. Um, he's a meat baron. He's kind of like a, a big industrial farmer. Um, he gets his family together to celebrate his birthday and kind of gives them a, a shock announcement that kind of inevitably leads to his his murder. So then you get this cast of characters, his family, an extended family, his uh, his wife, who's sort of like the image and the brand of the company, uh, her assistant, Steph, uh, his um, his long-term mistress and cook and on-site cow slaughterer, his kind of, um, his vegan activist son, uh, the daughter who's passed over and then the other daughter who comes back to kind of, um, to rekindle a relationship as well. They all kind of start 
pointing fingers yeah. at each other and trying to see and then we find out very quickly that everybody has a has a reason to kill him. Yeah, absolutely. I was wondering whether you would say he was he was murdered or not, but you've said <laughs> it now, so it's out there. Um, let's have a listen to a clip. Declan Conlon is the aforementioned uh, John Devereux, the, the big baron at the head of things. And here he is uh, making the announcement to his family. I think we hear the vegan son in the midst of this clip as well. But this is uh, John Devereux's announcement to his family on the occasion of his 60th birthday. I'm glad you could all join me for this birthday celebration. Now, I know we don't always see eye to eye, but at the end of the day, we're family. And that's what's important. Legacy. Tradition. Even if this piss-stained hippie wants to burn all that up with a blowtorch. We're the Devereaux's. We have butchered our way through this business, the meat business, for over 30 years. But the world is changing. People are becoming greener. Meat free. Ooh, when do we get to the bad part? Well, maybe I am out of touch. Maybe we do need to sow the seeds for a new future. So, with that in mind, I'm announcing I'm retiring at the end of the year. Batter Hall, its farms and its factories will be run by my firstborn son, Declan. <clears throat> oh, one more thing. Elena, as a token of our appreciation for your years with us, I'm giving you the cottage on the estate. You've earned it. Speech over. Enjoy your meal. <laughs> Declan Conlon there as John Devereux with, with a wonderful 60th birthday speech. And it was indeed, it's Samuel, the vegan son, played by Fionn Foley, isn't it, that we hear yeah. just in the middle of all of that, uh, Raynard McGregor, uh, writer and director of the piece, what a cast you have, Declan Conlon, uh, Elena, the, the, the young, the, the cook and the, 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 the current mistress, because he's got quite mm-hmm. a history, has John Devereux, Breffney Olihan. You have Dervla Crotty in there playing the, the character of the mother, Carolyn Bracken as Maxine, the daughter, Ian Toner as Declan Fuel and Cunningham. I could go on and on. But this is, this is quite a cast. Did you write with that specific cast in mind? Because you were the director as well, after all. Did you have people in your mind or what way did that work, Raina? You always kind of have a, a, I suppose, a kind of a type in mind. You know, mm. you have um, your favourite actors and you have, uh, you know, people that you've worked with before who kind of stick in your mind as well. But, you know, I, I it, when you're casting an ensemble, you have to kind of cast the entire piece together. Everyone has to kind of work off each other. And, you know, I got so lucky with this cast. Everybody was so in tune with each other and um, and so insightful to the text as well. Um, and to have Dervla and Declan as our matriarch and patriarch yeah. was, you know, it was it's been a career highlight completely. The, the location itself, Ballor Hall, which is kind of the family home and it gives us this sense of, you know, kind of, I suppose, nouveau riche gentry really that, that are involved here. But they they are very, very wealthy. Um, where is that location and how much did that location feed into your writing <laughs> of things? Or did you, again, did you have that specific location in mind? Uh, well, we didn't have anything specific. I think we wanted to find a really big house. I think for us finding a... A, a, a big um, kind of, I suppose that kind of old gentry house. It wasn't mm. just a kind of a big farmhouse. It was something from 
you know, um, from centuries ago that has old money that they were able to, yeah. you know, as a, as I suppose a nouveau riche Irish family were able to to buy and make their own. Um, and we were really lucky with the place we had. It's, it's actually a private residence that um, um, that we were really that were really open to letting us come in and, and film there. Yeah, and it, it it actually it's just it's wonderful in terms of the story that's been been told, uh, and location is important as well. I think if I can go to Sinead Calopy at this point, Sinead, you're joining us from Limerick this evening. Location is important to you, and but it's not again, it's not the specifics of where the location is. It's the kind of the wasteland nature of the location that's involved here. Maybe explain to us a little bit about the where of Every Five Miles, which is the name of your piece, Sinead. First of all, where is it set? Yeah, the Every Five Miles is set in a petrol station. Um, We shot the whole film on site in Ashburn, County Meath and... I think what was really important for us was that the world is very normal. I mean, every day, no matter where you are in the country, you have come through a forecourt of a petrol station, you've filled up your car. It was the normal world that everybody recognises. And that's the world the film is set in. And I think, you know, I wanted it to be, it's nearly all set at the petrol station Mm. because it's the... I suppose it's that kind of dichotomy between the extraordinary thing that's happening in the ordinary world that we just don't see. I mean, um, I think if you explain the title every five miles, which is explained to us in, in precise nature towards the end of the film, but it is an, it is an extraordinary statistic because it's not that there's a real life story at the heart of this. I suppose there are several real life stories that are informing the one that you're telling us. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that quote came from the Workplace Relations Commissioner um, when she was giving an interview to News Talk and she was saying that how her staff members, when they go out and they're inspecting workplaces for, you know, breaches of, you know, labour relations laws or they're inspecting it for you know, breaches of of human rights, you know, with, with workers and not having permits, that one of her workers came back and he said that it's human trafficking in, in the workplace. It's so prevalent from what he's seeing around the country that he says in his estimation that we're only about every five miles from somebody who has been trafficked in Ireland. Um, and she did go on to say in that interview that they have seen people living in slave-like conditions. Um, and I suppose when I heard that radio interview, you know, every five miles, and it's not a, a factual statistic, it's just a, an opinion of her worker, but it just really hit home to me how close it is to all of us. And in the normal places that it's happening, it's, you know, those hand car washes, the pop-up nail mm. salons, it's, you know, the fisheries industry, it's the restaurant industry. Um, and we're just going about our daily business and we're not noticing the signs. And that's what really every five miles is. It's a call out to the audience, to yeah. an awareness film, really. Yeah, open your eyes maybe and look what's happening around you. Yeah. Something that you might think is quite normal. Maybe there's something more sinister afoot. And this is indeed the, the character of Saoirse. And I suppose there's, I doubt that you didn't, that you that you named her by accident, Saoirse. <laughs> you know, freedom freedom is a big is a big issue here for sure. Uh, played by Danielle Galligan. Mm-hmm. Explain, she, she works in the, in the, in the filling station. Yeah. Across the way from where this car wash is. Yeah. 
and tell us a little bit about her and her situation. Yeah, um, Saoirse, I suppose, is a character that we can all relate to. She's a young girl who wants to go to college as a mature student to study nursing in Dublin. Um, she's living in a very rural area. She's been working in the petrol station, which is kind of like a rundown petrol station on low pay for a couple of years. And she's desperate to get to Dublin to study nursing. But obviously the cost of living up in Dublin is very expensive um, and she can't afford the accommodation. Her accommodation fell through and she's desperate now to get more money mm. or else she's not going to be able to take her, her place in, in Dublin. And she's just, she, you know, she's looking out the window, she's watching the CCTV and, and something starts to click in her mind when she's watching the car washers. She never really paid them much attention before, but she starts to look and she starts to look at one boy in particular. Um, and Saoirse is a character that is so relatable to everybody. You know, she could be your yeah. sister. And I think that's the ordinariness of Saoirse um, that we really, really relate to her situation. But then the extraordinariness then of David and how they're two young people, the exact same age and how by virtue of their birth, one has the protection of, of you know, her citizenship that protects her from her, her human rights being violated. And David has no protection at all. at all. Yeah. yeah. Let's have a listen to clip and I'll come back to you about the character of David in, in a minute mm-hmm. and the inspiration for that particular part of the story. But here we have Danielle Galligan as Saoirse and Samia Baloch as David. And this is, yeah, I think this is the first time that Saoirse has a proper conversation with David and she, she certainly smells that there's something wrong. I thought. <coughs> Here. <coughs> Take it. Do you want to sit down? Catch your breath? Sit. Here. I'm Saoirse. Saoirse Kennedy. Shisha. No. <laughs> Searsha. Ah, it's an Irish name. Don't worry, I get it all the time. Searsha. Yeah. Searsha. Yeah. David. David. Kind of like David. Simple enough. Glory, glory, Man United. <laughs> Damn right, glory, glory, Man United. <laughs> Danielle Galligan as Saoirse and Samir Baloch as the character of David in Every Five Miles, which is the third of the RTE uh, Storyland pieces that we're talking about this evening. Uh, and with us is Sinead Callipy, the writer of, of the piece. Maybe tell me a little bit about the inspiration or where you came across, because you've worked in child protection for over 20 years, uh, Sinead. Where did you come across, if not David's precise story, stories like this? Yeah, um, I suppose about 15 years ago, I was working for the health board at that stage um, and I was working, doing a project, um, researching the experiences of migrant children living in Clare. And that research, I suppose, took me out into communities. Um, I was specifically working with under 18s and I went into Direct Provision Centre, which is on the border of Limerick and Clare. And and people started telling me stories about undocumented workers. Um, And at that stage, 15 years ago, I didn't know anything about human trafficking. 
trafficking. Um, but I know I knew about undocumented workers. Um, but, you know, they're obviously very hidden in the community. And somebody had sort of dropped a hint that they thought that there was a car wash, that, you know, there were some undocumented workers there. And, you know, I just innocently drove past just kind of out of curiosity more than anything else. And um, they weren't children. They definitely weren't minors working there. They were they were grown men. But the closer I got to them, I, I saw one young man who was about 21. And there's something that just stood out with me. His hands were destroyed. And we see that with David and the character. Yeah. His hands were destroyed with acid. His shoes were really wet. Um, and he looked really terrified. Um, he really looked and the conditions were really, really bad. And I came away afterwards and, I, and in my head, I just thought, you know, they're just you know, very poorly paid workers. It never occurred to me that that young yeah. man was enslaved or trafficked in any way. But I did mention it to some colleagues. And, you know, at the time it was like, you know, oh, that place is dodgy and there may be criminal elements. And, you know, I'm sure the guards know about it. Just don't get involved. You don't want to draw trouble yeah, on yourself. It's one of the things that comes across in, in the film, if I might say, Sinead, yeah. is, is this idea of, you know, for evil to happen, all you need is for a, a good person to remain silent, that, yeah. you know, which is kind of the dilemma that it's in. But one other thing I wanted to bring up, and I'll go back to Eva on this one. Uh, Sinead mentioned there, Eva, this idea of uh, the, the character of Saoirse wants to, she wants to go to study nursing in Dublin. She's trying desperately to find a place to live in Dublin and of course that accommodation crisis is all part of it. Um, that's that's there within your uh, story as well, Eva, this whole idea of how difficult it is for people to actually live uh, your, the, the character in uh, uh, the character of Eilish is, a, is an artist Yeah, she's kind of a struggling artist and she's a bit aimless and she obviously has this kind of mustard thing going on in, in, the, in the shadows and when she meets someone she then kind of pins all her hopes on him and then when that relationship breaks down she ends up having to move back in with her mother so it is also kind of a comment on like you know, what can happen to so many people, I think, when they're struggling yeah. to, like, establish themselves, like, in their 20s, how you think, like, one person can can answer all your problems and your accommodation is really insecure and then before you know it, you're back in your childhood bedroom. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's all, all too familiar a story. And let me go to each one of you. I'll go back to, to Reynoch, first of all. What was the, the most important thing that the Storyland Project gave to you in terms of realising Ballor Hall, Reynoch? The most important thing? Um... I, you know, I, I I keep coming back to the the freedom and the support that was kind of, uh, you know, yeah. when we were developing this, we were very much trusted with um, what we wanted to do with that script. And we were encouraged to really pursue you your know, own ideas. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. to make it kind of as dark as we wanted, as as funny as we wanted, as, you know, as, as sharp as we wanted as well. And I, I think that that was down to a lot of it uh, yeah. from RTE and fantastic films. And, and I think I, that was the most I, important. And let me go to Sinead on the same question. What was the most important thing you got, Sinead? Yeah, I think the fact that RTE were giving us a platform to go on the national broadcaster, you know, at a prime time slot, you know, to, to bring the story to TV was massive because the audience potential yeah. that can see the story was huge. And, you know, to give to, to, to really entrust, you know, our production company were Vico Films. The director was Vincent Lamb and they really did trust us with the process. Right. Um, and that was really important. And finally and briefly to you, the same question, Eva, Eva O'Connor regarding Mustard. 
Yeah, I think just that they took a punt on three very different projects. Like Mustard is obviously quite a yeah. schmad idea on paper and the fact that they were like, yeah, go for it and gave us creative control. I think that was well, really special. There, there are three very different stories and each one of them packs its own particular punch uh, and I recommend them to, to anybody who just wants to get a sense of the stories that are out there. And thanks to Eva O'Connor, Sinead Callipy and Rhea Nuchnick-Riagain for being with us this evening. Devised to develop and showcase great local drama storyline comes to RTE Television. Three new dramas on RT2 9.30pm on the 20th of October that's tonight isn't it then the other two uh, this mustard tonight 27th of October and 3rd of November for the other two stories respectively and that is our lot for this Thursday evening here on Arena Claire Hogan and Leah Murphy Research Namandine Paso-Divine was the broadcast coordinator Ruth Kennington was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Ola McGowan talk to you tomorrow night from live from the uh, Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera where we'll be having a um, the 10 shortlisted stories for this year's RT Short Story Competition and we'll be announcing the winner.